Sanditi ko akali ko ehi pasiko o anaiko pechatang de wihabu inuhiti. The Dhamma is well expounded by the Blessed One, apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation leading inwards to be experienced individually by the wise. So these chants are from the old language of Pali. Um, Pali was the language that the teachings got written down in. This was an oral tradition. And that's why we have so many chants. And it's why when we tell the stories from the time of the Buddha, they repeat over and over again. Because any culture that passes wisdom in an oral tradition knows the value of repetition. The same way we sit down here, we're mindful of the in-breath, mindful of the out-breath, repeat. Mindful of the in-breath, mindful of the out-breath, repeat. Mindful of the left foot stepping and the right and repeat. It's how we learn. It's how we grow. It's how we deepen. We just keep showing up. So tonight I want to share a map. And it's a map from the Thai forest tradition. And it's a map about how mindfulness matures how it matures into wisdom, and that wisdom leads to release. There are many maps in Buddhism and out of Thailand that point to the same thing. This is one that has informed my practice deeply over the last, well, almost 20 years now. But I thought I would start with a story. And it's a story that did not happen in Thailand. It happened here. And it happened over a decade ago now. So there was an event I was present at, and I have an imperfect memory of the event, and yet what I do remember has informed my practice. So I thought I would share it with you. Over a decade ago now, at Spirit Rock Meditation Center, we held a large event, uh, a party really, for Jack Cornfield's 60th birthday. Did you expect that I was going to be going here? <laughs> Probably not. How many of you have been to Spirit Rock Meditation Center? Okay, so a lot of you have, but not everybody. Uh, if you get a chance, you know, go on by, even if you're not sitting in a retreat. Um, there's a community center that's generally open on the weekdays or the weekends. You can check out and see what's open. Beautiful land there. For me, the land of Spirit Rock is a teacher and worth going to visit. So this was a time long before now, and Spirit Rock, the land, has changed a lot in the last few years. We've opened a new community center, which is quite high-end and beautiful and new. 
But this was before that. And so this event took place in the, outside the old community center. In the old community center were several trailers that were stuck together. How many of you sat in that old community center? Yeah, you remember. So it was a little funky. I quite liked it. My first introduction to Spirit Rock was actually walking into those trailers on a Monday night. Uh, my first teaching was done there in the same trailers. So there were the trailers, but this event was outside because Jack's birthday is in the summer. It's in July, actually. And so outside of the community hall, there's a large meadow. Underneath that large meadow is or was a massive septic system. Sometimes it smelled lovely like the meadow. Sometimes it smelled a little like the septic system. It's like that. It's like that where we live, where we work in our minds. That day I remember it smelling quite lovely and there were seats set up and there were tents set up and there was a large stage and on the large stage performances were happening. People were offering poetry and performance and music in honor of Jack and his work. I don't really remember much about all that. I remember one performance and the one performance was by Nina Wise. And Nina Wise is a local Dharma teacher and performance artist, very, very skilled at improv. I respect her practice and her work. And so she got up on stage and we all knew that it was likely to be great and kind of settled into our seats and she began. And she began this spontaneous performance that was about her first Vipassana retreat, her first insight retreat. And so she talked about arriving, and she's very dramatic, and how nervous she was, and her whole body went into a contraction, and she wasn't looking at anybody, at least how I remember it. And then I remember her dragging herself across the stage, just dragging, the way that we physically would look when we can't stand it anymore, but we suck it up and try to look okay here. Well, she was just letting it rip. She was dragging herself across the walking meditation path in full resistance and saying, I can't take another step. <laughs> okay, so clearly she's not the only one who's experienced this. We all have in moments to really normalize that. And so towards the end of the high drama that was her first insight meditation retreat, she has some sort of incredible illumination. I don't remember the details of it, but I remember the look on her face and the way that she threw her arms up in the air and I've seen the light, whatever her version of that was. And then she said something like, you know, I've heard that all of these teachings are said to be fingers pointing at the moon. All the teachings, all the practices are said to be fingers pointing at the moon. And then she turned around, she whirled around, and she said, sometimes though, we need a really great finger. And she just pointed all the way out across the audience at Jack and brought the house down. You know, it was, it was really a real honoring and respect. All these teachings, and I mean, this is multi-traditional in meditation, said to be the finger pointing at the moon. The moon is the essence. The moon is the illumination and the awakeness that's beyond all pointing, 
all words, all concepts, but sometimes it's very helpful to have a great finger. And there's all kinds of great fingers. So I'm going to share some fingers pointing at the moon this evening. But please know, they're only fingers, they're techniques, they're words, they're concepts. Some of them will work for you. Others of them will be confusing. Let them go. It doesn't matter. Because it's about what we know and what we're discovering about the moon. So when it comes to the terrain of how mindfulness deepens and wisdom increases and letting go begins to happen naturally, this terrain that's sometimes called the terrain of awareness. There's one other story that I want to tell that has been very helpful for me and I've discovered over the years of teaching very helpful for some of you. Because language is hard when we're pointing at things that can't be described the importance of finding our own language. So there have been times in my own meditation path when the language has really caught me, really shaken me up, held me back, locked me down, confused me. And even times when I've thought, is this for me? Because the words didn't work. So I'll let you know what saved my Dharma career at times like this, my my Dharma path, and it's Star Trek. Star Trek saved my spiritual path. Okay, now many other things have also saved my spiritual path in times of duress, but let's just talk about Star Trek. Um, So what do we know about Star Trek? You don't need to be a fan. You've probably seen one of the movies. It's one of these American phenomenons. But in Star Trek, they have a device, a piece of technology that's called Universal Translator. And it's incredibly helpful because if you think about it, here's, um, for example, the Starship Voyager, right? And it's moving through hyperspace, moving, moving, moving really fast, and then it stops in a galaxy far, far away. And lo and behold, right where it stops, there's a so-called alien starship. Now, what makes it alien is that It's not the Starship Voyager, and it's not human. It's interesting how we use language. So because it's not those two things, all of a sudden it's alien. This is what we do inside ourselves, and this is what we do cross-culturally. So there's some good teachings here. Ship shows up, alien ship's right here, and we've got an issue. Because one ship just came into another ship's perceived terrain. It's like what happens when we walk in here and somebody's sitting in our chair or in our walking path. And what we know is that when two groups of people do not share a language in common, a culture in common, they don't share a lot in common, if they don't figure out how to connect, there'll be a war. So it's serious. Step in, universal translator. And so what this machine does is a Star Trek Voyager says something like, Captain Janeway says something like, oh, greetings, um, we've just arrived in, in your galaxy and, and we didn't know that you were here and, and um, we're very glad to see you and is it okay that we're here? 
And it goes through in a way that that starship can understand, and then that starship speaks in a, a non-human language, maybe non-verbal, and the universal translator translates, and it comes back, well, actually, we were quite surprised to see you, and we're not quite sure who you are or what you're about, and, you know, do you think you could depart rather soon? And then it goes back, yes, of course we can. It prevents a war. So what is preventing the war in terms of our meditation, our spiritual path? It's preventing that extra struggle so that we can say, this word does not work for me, it's triggering. And I'm gonna retranslate it here and now. This is part of what we do as we mature as spiritual practitioners, that we have the empowerment to do that and that we do it. So I very much wanna offer these reflections in that spirit, make them your own, translate them as we go. Don't question too much whether you have the right word. If a word comes to you, trust it. So here is the basic intro into the map. And I'm gonna say it in both languages, the old language, Pali, and English, and then we'll go through it. Here's the Pali. Sati, Mahasati, Sati Panya, Panya Vimutti. Sati in the English is mindfulness. Mahasati, simple definition in the English is great mindfulness. Maha means great, and we're going to unpack that further. Sati Panya, mindfulness, wisdom. And Panya Vimuti is wisdom that leads to release. So Sati is mindfulness, Panya is wisdom, and that's repeated. I'll write this down and put it on the bulletin board for those of you that learn by seeing. So then we go through it, right? And we start with sati, or mindfulness. And a lot of us were quite familiar with this. We're even more familiar with it by this point in the retreat. So I'm going to talk about it in just one way. It's an analogy that I've found helpful. And I think I actually first heard the terms related to mindfulness of paddling and floating when I was teaching with Gil Fronsdale, who often teaches with our team. I don't remember what he said about it. I just remember he mentioned paddling and floating. So I've just kind of taken it on over the years. So different ways to be mindful. We are now in a canoe. Or if you prefer, a kayak, depending on what you like to float down the river of the spiritual path in. But seriously, if you spend time on the water, even if it's just a $5 flotational device, just feel yourself, you know? We're in a canoe or a kayak, and we're moving down this river. That's the path of our meditation, our practice. And we know when we're moving down a river, that sometimes we need to paddle. And sometimes it's actually more helpful to float. So let's talk about what these are. Paddling is definitely a technique. So um, metaphorically and literally. So all of the techniques, starting with, all right, I'm now balanced in this moment, in this body, and I've got a home base. Sometimes we call that home base a primary object, that which we return to again and again to stabilize the flow. And we've talked about the breath 
as access for that. We've talked about the body scan as access for that. And there are numerous others. So that whole thing of knowing where we're landing and landing there is actually part of paddling. The techniques of mental noting, of counting, of touch points are all part of paddling. They don't just happen automatically until we've been meditating for many, many years or an extreme moment of grace. And so we've got to paddle along a little bit. Investigation is a very important part of paddling and mindfulness. So we go, oh, there's a pain in the shoulder. Let me check it out at an elemental level. I can take three breaths. I can see how it's changing. I can see how I hate it. Oh, investigating, investigating. That's all paddling. Then there's floating. I think floating sometimes we forget about. In part because as Westerners we tend to have striving conditioning. Type A personalities, some of us. Got to try harder, do more. We forget about the principle that less is more. So we forget to float. But it's as if we're trying so hard and we're going along and we're working. And when we're canoeing or kayaking, we know if we keep paddling forever, we get exhausted. There's times when you can just do a single stroke and glide. There's a time when we can roll over on our back and float. So what is that in the practice? Relaxing. And sometimes the relaxing just comes in and sometimes we drop in a little intention and just rest, ease, receptivity, allowing the breath to come to us instead of chasing after it. And that which knows all this, we just rest in the knowing of the whole show. That's floating. So sati, or mindfulness. Then we have mahasati. And mahasati is great mindfulness, but in fact, there are five different definitions to really flesh out mahasati as a term. I trained in these teachings, I learned these teachings from one of my teachers who was Thai, Thai forest monastic, And it was interesting because over the years that I trained with him, he had many different translators, and I don't speak Thai. I got really frustrated at one point because one translator would translate Mahasati one way into English, and the other one would translate the other way, and I think, why can't they just translate it right? It took me a very long time to understand that, oh, It's kind of like how some of the native cultures in the Arctic Circle have dozens of names for the word snow. You need a range to really get the nuances of the essence. So I'll share them with you. And when we put them together, we start to get a sense of this terrain, of the experience of mindfulness as it deepens, as it matures. So number one, Mahasati is great mindfulness. This is mindfulness informed by wise view, which is a whole teaching in and of itself, but let's just keep it simple. The view of how we experience reality gets wiser. We've all experienced that in moments. 
Number two, mahasati is continuous awareness. So now we're saying, okay, the view, what we're seeing and understanding is getting wiser and there's a continuity to it. It stops interrupting and becomes more of a flow. And what's happening is the concentration and the mindfulness are interweaving. They're starting to support each other. And the beautiful thing is we can train in it, and some of us do, but it happens naturally just through being here, just by showing up again and again and again, and just by caring that much, it happens. Number three, Mahasati is pure knowing. So this one is a little bit more technical. Consciousness at the six sense doors is not colored by the defilements. So let's unpack it. Firstly, what are the defilements? Okay. So basic defilements are three. Um, they're greed and aversion and delusion and all their permutations. So greed, wanting, lust, aversion, hatred, anger, irritation, fear, delusion, confusion, vagueness, these whole areas. That as human beings who are not 100% awake 100% of the time, we are gonna experience. We're gonna experience them. So those are the defilements. And basically these tendencies are fueled by ignorance and they're the roots of our reactivity and stress. So if we're in struggle and we're in stress, we know that defilements have been activated and we missed it, and now we're up the ladder of reactivity in stress. And it's okay because we can climb back down. And this map is one pointer of how to do that. So then we have to talk about the six sense doors again, which are the five usual sense doors plus the mind. So consciousness, the knowing quality at the six sense doors is not colored by the defilements. So here's the analogy I use, just to make it practical. Glasses, right? So it's as if we're walking around with colored glasses and we don't know it. And maybe the glasses are fear glasses. You choose your favorite out of the defilements, the one that visits the most often. It might be anger or fear or lust or greed or confusion. And you know, imagine yourself walking around with these defilement glasses on and we don't know. And what happens is there's a sound, and we have the defilement glasses on, and the sound gets filtered through those glasses, and we experience them through the glasses. And all of a sudden the sound is startling, or scary, or it pisses us off. Because these things are glued to our face. They've been glued to our face so long, so often, that we don't know. When mindfulness becomes maha, Great, we can start to see, oh, I'm wearing glasses. And the whole world is annoying today because you know that, those defilement glasses are on. Everything contributes to the case about everything being annoying. And we can take them off, which is an act of paddling. And then we can rest in the absence of that reactivity, which is a floating. All right, so we've got Mahasati is... Great mindfulness, continuous mindfulness, pure knowing. Number four, Mahasati is pure awareness. So again, 
This is just language. They're all very similar. Awareness not colored by the defilements. But I'll share with you the image that I use to kind of tease it out a little bit. So now we're looking up at the sky. It might be worth going outside before the end of the retreat. You don't have to. But going outside and just laying down and looking up at the sky. Clouds, no clouds, birds, branches. When do we ever have time to do that? When do we ever have permission? When can we do something like that and someone else doesn't walk by and think we're weird? For that reason alone, try it out. Anyway, we look up at the sky and what we start to see is, oh, sometimes the sky is covered by clouds and we really can't see the blue, the big. We see the clouds. When awareness is colored with defilements, that's what it's like. Sometimes the clouds are passing by. It's like, okay, there's some reactivity bubbling through here, but I can see there's more than the reactivity. And sometimes it's just the sky. Awareness not colored by the defilements. Number five, mahasati as mindfulness of emptiness. Okay, so we could do a whole talk or a whole retreat just on this one. I actually, I do um, in other venues. But to keep it simple, universal translator will be helpful for many of you here. Because for some of us, we hear the word emptiness and we go, does that mean nothing? Does it mean void? Does it mean annihilation? It just feels so negating. Well, then use a different word because it's a finger pointing at a moon that can be experienced individually by the wise, as the chant goes. So here's the way I relanguage it. Think about um, mindfulness of emptiness. It's like, okay, things as we experience them are empty. You know, we always have these bells here, so it's, it's helpful to have props, right? This bell is empty, but there's something here, right? And we can even label it in a way that everyone would find useful, which is a bell. But it could also be a hat. It could also be a flower pot. It could be a bowl for my soup. It's empty of having to be something always, something solid, something permanent, something controlled and rigid, and that means it's pregnant with possibility. So one of the ways I retranslate emptiness is pregnant with possibility. See how you retranslate it. Creates a sense of possibility where we're not trapped anymore in our self box. We can be a self as a tool and as a process instead of a self that is shut down and locked down and has to maintain the status quo of itself so that it's okay and everyone thinks that they're you know, good or whatever that means. We get to break those bonds. And so the key with Mahasati is actually to recognize, to recognize this terrain to recognize when it's continuous, when you've got the glasses on and taking them off, when it's pregnant with possibility. And there's many doorways in. 
there's actually a thousand doorways in. Which means that we have to trust ourselves and our practice. We have to trust the knowing of when it's deepening and when it's surfacing and know that those just cycle. But I'll name a couple of doorways in just for those of you that go, but I don't know, I don't know. That was me, the beginning of this training. Give me a doorway in. My teacher wasn't so good with that. So out of the Western Thai forest tradition, one doorway into this terrain. Ajahn Sumedho, who is the founder of the Western branches of the Thai forest tradition, the monastics, often teaches about the sound of silence. And the sound of silence does not require a quiet space to hear. It's helpful at first, but it's actually an inner sound that is available all the time within all sounds. Some people hear it easily. Other people don't hear it at all. It's okay if you don't hear it at all. Some people have tinnitus and it makes this doorway a little bit tricky. It's not tinnitus. It's just one finger pointing at the moon to be able to access this spaciousness, this clearing out of reactivity, and this knowing. So you don't have to wait. Just check. Do you hear something underneath within the sounds now? Some people it's a hum or a buzz. For some people it's more somatic than a sound. This morning, John was talking about the use of foreground and background in meditation practice. I find this very helpful with Mahasati practice, but it's a little bit different than what John was describing. Same analogy. But there are times when there's the thing we're mindful of, and we call that the object, the thing we're mindful of, and then there's the knowing of it, So there's two things. We can actually start to pendulate between that which knows the breath, that which knows the sound, that which knows the body, that which knows anything. Usually that's in the foreground, especially when we're developing basic mindfulness. At a certain point, we can let that relax back and that which knows all of this for a moment comes into the foreground. The whole spirit of this is small moments many times. Because guess what? We're not working in relative time anymore. We're in the timeless. Remember the chant? Timeless. Encouraging investigation. And so this long is the whole world of accessing that knowing. That which knows the breath. And if you think to yourself, I've never experienced that and I never will. It may be that you haven't experienced it yet. Sometimes these things need to be pointed out before you even turn to look and see what can be experienced. 
So in this moment, I'm being the finger pointing at the moon. Those are a couple of doorways in. There are many. So recap. Mahasati as great mindfulness, continuous awareness, pure knowing, pure awareness, and mindfulness of emptiness. Then we move to satipanya, mindfulness wisdom. And if you're anything like me, you might be asking, well, that other stuff sounds fairly wise. What makes it wise? That was a question I asked. What makes it wise in particular is that it's a pointing to a teaching that John mentioned last night, I believe. It's called the three characteristics. And so what it's pointing to are these three things. Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self. I'm going to say this several ways, okay? Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self. Anicca, dukkha, anatta in the Pali. Everything changes. When we hold on, it hurts. It's not personal. That's my feet on the ground way of remembering it, thinking about it, talking about it. Everything changes. When we hold on, it hurts. It's not personal. Or if you prefer, it's not personal the way I thought it was personal. If that just helps you relax and go, okay, I can get in the terrain here. So I want to share with you a quote by Upasaka Ki and introduce you to her. Upasaka Ki was one of the foremost women monastic Thai teachers of the last century. She's passed on now. She has some wonderful books. Tremendous practice, incredible awakening, and offered her life to service out of that freedom. She's very well known for being uncompromising and fearless in her own practice and the way she teaches it, so she does not hold her punches. This is not like soft, friendly dharma. It's like cut-through dharma. And we need both. Here's one thing that she says. This one thing is something you have to be very careful about. You have to see this for yourself. That is... If your mindfulness and discernment, so satipanya, are constantly in charge, the truths of the arising and disbanding of mental and physical phenomenon are always there for you to see, always there for you to know. So if your mindfulness and discernment are constantly in charge, the truths of arising and passing of mental and physical phenomena are always there for you to see and to know. So if mindfulness wisdom is in charge, guess who isn't in charge? You get that? I'm not in charge anymore. In relationship with it, yes, but not in charge and in control anymore. Something else is. And so we have to get to know that something else and develop a relationship and learn to trust it so we're not just surrendering ourselves to we don't know what. This is this practice of trusting in the unfolding on the path and letting our own spiritual journey inform us. 
So what we do is we bring these three wisdoms. That's how I talk about the three characteristics, these three wisdoms. We bring them to the reactivity that we call the defilements. We're remembering the defilements are the range of greed and aversion and delusion. And we bring them in as supports, as refuges, resources, interventions, wake-up calls. We bring them in. So I'll share with you one image an analogy for actually practicing with these reactive habit patterns that I find helpful. And it's the image of, uh, usually I see it as a bush. I suppose it could be a tree. You decide. Some sort of flowering something. So what we know about flowering somethings is that they have their above ground piece. They've got their just below ground piece that we can't see just below the earth. And then they've got their deep root systems. And some bushes, trees have really deep root systems. We as human beings have very deep root systems. Okay. So we'll talk about above ground, just below ground, and deep underground, and how this works with the defilements. When the defilements are above ground and they work on the level of thought, words, and actions, they are obvious. We are in a mental tailspin of reactivity and planning our revenge. We are above ground in that plant, in that tree. Um, we are speaking uh, in a way that disparages ourselves or others. We are above ground. Um, our actions, we've just, um, you know, gotten so confused that uh, we didn't listen and we didn't speak clearly and we gave away our power and we're sort of standing there realizing that this just doesn't feel right. We're above ground in the delusion, defilement, reactivity pattern. Is this making sense? No? Okay. So then we go just below ground and that's what we're doing here that we have the time and the support to get below ground before all that stuff manifests, right? So let's look at the disparagement and maybe look at it at a thought level. It's that bubbling feeling just before we start judging ourselves without mercy. That's above ground. Just that feeling of like, oh, not quite good enough. We're just below ground. It hasn't like grown into a big tree yet, but it, you know, we've got that feeling just below ground. Um, with speech, it's right before we say that thing and we can f almost feel it coming, but not quite. The thoughts are going, but we haven't said it yet and we've intervened on it once. We're just below ground. Then we get in the deep root system. The deep root system is our core beliefs. You know, I'm not good enough. I don't need anything. The world's not a safe place. Uh, whatever your core beliefs are. These are our organizing principles. They are major glasses. We put them on, we view the world through it, and the world cooperates and reveals itself through those eyes. That's why we train, so that we can get down in there and bring all of our caring and all of our courage and say, okay, this stuff's really hard. Can I see that it isn't who I really am? and not take it so personally? Can I see how painful it is to live from this deep root system unconsciously? 
can I sense the possibility that it can transform and change? That's the work in the deep root system with the three characteristics, the three wisdoms. And as the sati and mahasati, the mindfulness and um, great mindfulness keep developing, they start to support this process in a number of different ways. The practice in the end takes care of itself. All we have to do is keep showing up. So now we'll move. We've got sati, mahasati, sati panya, and now we've got panya vimuti, which is wisdom that leads to letting go, or if you prefer, wisdom that leads to release. So now we need another prop. Oh, good, I remembered it. Kleenex. So my guess is is that some of you have a Kleenex on you, and some of you might have a scarf or a shawl or a small cushion. The only reason that I mention it, or a sock that you can take off. You can watch me do this. It's not very interesting. Or you can experience it for yourself from the inside, which you need a prop for. So your decision. But what this is connected with is a famous quote by Ajahn Chah. And I'm interested in, I told you last Dharma talk, I'm interested in researching the backstories on famous quotes and teaching. I'm also interested in taking famous quotes and teachings and actually using them as an invitation into practice. Because I find sometimes that we share these famous quotes and some people get inspired and, you know, oh, that's wonderful, and then we move on. And they're actually invitations into practice. So I develop practices for them. So here's this one. Famous quote. Ajahn Chah says, if you let go a little, because we're talking about panya vimuti, wisdom that leads to release. If you let go a little, you have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you have complete peace. And they all count. And they all matter. Okay? So now we have a prop. And it's metaphorical, but it points to something. It's another finger pointing at the moon. So we've got our Kleenex, or our whatever. And first, in order to let go a little, we got to hold on pretty tight. So I'm going to invite you to grab that object and hold it as tight as you can and really feel it. Not the idea of holding it tight. Feel that fist. Because this is what we do with things we cling and crave to in ourselves, in our worlds. Feel it. I've been threatening for the last couple of years that at some point I will have us do this for 20 minutes to a half an hour so we can really feel it. But I promise not tonight. Maybe some of the people I'm uh, working with with this ongoing and they can come and report back. So feel the holding on. And then we're not going to drop it. We're going to let go a little and experience the relief and a little bit of peace. And really feel the difference between grabbing so tight and just holding on 
without the extra controlling and grasping. If you let go a little, you get a little peace. Oh, and even better, think about something that you grasp after or cling to and put it in the object, the Kleenex. Ah, a little less clinging. Some relationship, some physical object, something. So the next one is if you let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. So with this one, when you're ready, open your hand and feel it and let that object drop to the floor. Feel the openness of the hand, the absence of holding on to that object. If you let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. But it's not completely, so we got to pick it back up again. Okay, we're picking it back up again. That's what we do. And it counts because we know what it feels like to release it some. And then that references us to do it again, whatever the thing is. It doesn't matter. In this world, it doesn't matter what the object is. Awareness doesn't care what we're holding on to or what we're letting go of. So now we're holding on again, gently. And we've got, if you let go completely, you have complete peace. So wait until you're ready. Really wait until you're ready. And when you're ready, let it go. Feel the openness in the space. And do not pick it up again. And feel that not picking it up again. Complete peace. Small moments many times. One more teaching related to wisdom that leads to release. This is from another late great master of Thailand, Ajahn Fuang. That's really how Mahasati supports the release of these reactive defilement patterns. And it's a quote. It's a quote I've been working with in meditation and in daily life on a regular basis for over a year now. Whenever anything hits you, let it go only as far as aware. Don't let it go all the way into the heart. We all have things that hit us, thoughts that bombard us, jangle us, take us out, emotions that do the same, what other people say, what the culture says, the information, just being in an intense, busy environment. We all have things that hit us metaphorically. This is a teaching about how to practice with that. It's subtle. It's why I've been working with it regularly for over a year. So with all of these, you go, I don't hear the sound of silence. Well, the first time you try to be mindful of breathing, did you just like nail it? I certainly didn't. Repetition, repetition. 
So maybe you think about something that hits you. Might be here on retreat, might be in your life. On a scale of one to 10, do not choose the most difficult thing that hits you, just like the loving kindness practice. Choose a three or a four on a scale of one to 10. Just feel into the possibility. Whenever anything hits you, let it go only as far as aware. Don't let it go all the way into the heart. Don't let it hit the heart. So a closing quote by Ajahn Sumedho about awareness. Awareness is your refuge. Awareness of the changingness of feelings, of attitudes, of moods, of material change and emotional change. Stay with that because it's a refuge that is indestructible. It is not something that changes. It is a refuge you can trust in. This refuge is not something that you create. It's not a creation. It's not an ideal. It's very practical and very simple, but easily overlooked or not noticed. When you're mindful, you're beginning to notice. It's like this. It's just like Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.